Are you looking for a job? Do you know someone who's looking for a job? Then check out our job board over at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. Whether you want a full-time job or you're looking for something temporary or freelance, we've got you covered. This week, Olark in San Francisco, California is looking for a senior UX designer. Society of Grownups is looking for an interaction designer in Boston, Massachusetts. And Revision Path is looking for staff writers and you can work from anywhere. So check out the Revision Path job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs and find your next job today. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, I want to talk about our sponsors, of course, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. MailChimp has also recently announced MailChimp Pro, and this is a powerful set of new tools for MailChimp that include multivariate testing, delivery insights, compliance insights, and a whole lot more. So sign up today and get a free account at MailChimp.com. You need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. They also have this cool new feature that's called Hover Connect that allows you to automatically connect any of your Hover domains to popular services like Tumblr, Shopify, or Squarespace. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code GIVETHANKS and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells graphics, fonts, themes, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2 per item. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, of course, today is Monday, and they've got great bundle promotions every month. And if you see something else that you like, use our promo code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. All right, here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. Of course, you can become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash revisionpath. We're up to 27 patrons right now for a combined total of $192 per month. Again, a huge thanks to all of you who have already pledged your support and appreciation for the show. If you want to become a patron of Revision Path and get access to some great perks like special giveaways, early access to future episodes, or a monthly Google Hangout with me and other Revision Path supporters, head on over again to patreon.com forward slash revision path and make that happen. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. All right, now let's get on to this week's interview. I talked with Boston-based software developer, Douglas Turner. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Doug Turner. I'm a software developer. I do two types of software development. I do iOS development, so that's apps for iPhones and iPads. And I've also recently begun doing front-end development. So that's JavaScript, HTML, CSS, specifically focusing on data visualization. A big focus of mine is taking data and making understandable pictures out of it on the web. How did you first start getting into front-end web development and why the focus on data? I accidentally moved over to web. I started 
out doing iOS. I was working with, there's an institute here in Cambridge, Mass, called the Broad Institute. And they're a collaboration between Harvard and MIT. And they're basically genomicists, computational genomics people looking at the genetic basis of cancer. And I got invited to work on an app for iPad to do data visualization. And following on to that, since they liked what I had done on iPad, they said, well, we're doing these other data visualization projects. Would you like to join in on them? And they were web-based. And I said, fine. My a big, big driver for me is using pictures to make things understandable. That really all started in graduate school. I went to the University of Chapel Hill, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I got my master's in computer science, and their focus was using computer graphics to help solve problems. So architectural visualization, molecular visualization, uh, visualizing radiation treatments. So it kind of stuck with me. It's a very sort of powerful thing for me, this idea of how powerful images can be for letting you understand information much, much more effective, much quicker than text or any other way, audio, those sort of things. Our eye and our brain are amazingly fast and computationally powerful to decipher information. So it's a passion of mine. And I like the people who do it, their, their ideas. There's so many interesting ideas, interesting problems that need to be solved in that space. And it's just a never-ending area of, of interest and fun. So that's why you do it. <laughs> what are some of those problems? I know you mentioned just now, like cancer research. Well, you've got a lot of data that people have to understand. So you basically have genetic information Moving away from uh, sort of genetics, which is probably a little out there, if you just take something as simple as using graphics for architecture, in the old days they'd use 2D plans and they'd have floor plans or they'd make a physical model. But with computer graphics, you can do many different representations. You can look at different, using different rendering styles to look at what will this building actually look like at the location at six o'clock at night? What will it look like during the course of a day as the sun moves over it? Will the shadow cast by the building make the people walking in the street feel like they're walking, you know, in a deep valley and it'll be unpleasant? All of these sort of problems could never have been done before, or they would just take so much time and so much resources. Computer graphics can solve these problems quicker and just give you more levers to play with. So it really lets you explore visuals. I use computer graphics, 3D graphics sort of as one example, but any sort of visuals, if done well, they let you look at a problem from a bunch of different perspectives. We say that there's not one perfect visualization but because, again, I talk about the eye-brain combination. This is something that a guy named Edward Tufte, who was sort of one of my gurus, has talked about it. He's really the guru of data visualization, the guru of, of the power of our eye-brain to decipher amazing amounts of information. If you put together the right picture in the right way, 
so that that's a big a big theme of what I'm interested in and sort of chasing that goal of making just the right combination of visuals so that so that the human being can solve the problem rather than making a pretty picture that is a, well that's a lovely picture you're making something that will trigger a response in the human's brain to say aha oh yes of course that's where the thing and then you drive sort of a vector in a certain direction towards the solution of a problem that's what i'm after that's what's interesting that really sounds a lot like what the design process is for designers. It's really that same type of a uh, yes, same type of journey. Yeah, yes, it is. That's probably why, of all the things I could do in software, that it's attracted to me because I'm one of these hybrid types. I'm sort of a mixture of technology and design. I, most of my heroes and most of the things that I'm passionate about really are artistic or design. And I try and use them to sort of guide how I think about technology. I have to be doing things that are human-facing, that involve the human being, because that's where all the interesting problem solving is. And also, I just, I think my background, I was, you know, I sort of describe myself as a humanist. I think a lot of people who do software, they just love the code, and it's wonderful. Writing code is just incredibly satisfying. But for me, there has to be more. You know, there has to be this connection to people and to real problems. And the way I do it is through pictures. It, it basically ticks all the checkboxes for me that, that satisfy me and make me interested in, in solving a problem. I also like being, you know, one of the reasons why I'm working with a particular client now is I like being around really smart people solving really hard problems, you know, one of the things I tell people is work with the smartest people you can find doing interesting work. Because often what I find is when you're working with really smart people who are really focused on solving problems, they tend to be generous with their knowledge. And they tend to be sort of open about their ideas. And also I'm just a super duper. I've always been super curious about stuff. That's just the way I'm. I think it's probably my mom wired me that way. <laughs> my mom and my dad. But uh so, yeah, I could go on and on just about what makes it so so interesting to me. It's endlessly interesting. Well, I know when you first contacted me, you told me that you really have this this story that you want to share. So I want to start from the beginning, particularly since you just mentioned your parents. You grew up in New York. Yeah, I grew up in New York. I actually grew up with my mom. My dad left when I was two. I didn't really know okay. my dad from a multiracial family. So my mom was descendants of Russian Jews. My father was black. He grew up in Tennessee. I didn't know, I know hardly anything about him. But I grew up in New York City in Greenwich Village. I've heard this before. It's important to pick your parents wisely. Well, at least I picked my mom wisely because she brought me up in the village and I was surrounded by intellectuals and artists and uh, musicians and writers. You know, I, for example... I grew up knowing Paul Robeson. I mean, uh, his son, oh, Paul wow. Robeson Jr., was a, a close family friend. His, I went to summer camp with his kids. And, you know, Robert De Niro, the actor, was in our neighborhood. Grace Paley, the writer. Just all around us were just interesting people. And everyone was just, they were intellectuals. They were, they were looking at the world and trying to sort of 
a lot of them were sort of politically activists. So it was sort of at the time, it's sort of, you know, Vietnam War and sort of just people looking at the way the world is and saying these things are wrong. And I drew together a lot of intellectuals and a lot of politically active people. And I was sort of in, and my mom just happened to be in that milieu. She was very politically active. I remember her dragging us to, uh, to protests where, you know, there's cops on horses pushing people back. And uh, wow. it wasn't exactly, you know, play dates and these sort of things. It was. And many kids grew up this way. That's, it was just sort of the times. I mean, I knew the, the writer, Grace Paley. She's um, an important writer. And my mom, on one Sunday... My mom takes me and my brother. So it was my brother and myself. Steve is my brother. We grew up in the village. And she took us down to Greenwich Street in the village. We lived on 16th Street, so it was a short walk. And in the village at this time was a women's prison called the Women's House of Dissension, right in the middle of Greenwich Village, which to me seems insane, but it was there. And we would go down on this Sunday and we'd stand in a doorway across the street from the prison, and Grace Paley, who was often arrested for doing various kinds of protests, we would yell up to Grace Paley, and she'd be up on the eighth floor in this prison, and through the bars, we'd have this conversation. And this was like a completely normal thing <laughs> at the Women's House of Detention. I think it was like Sundays, I think, was the day that husbands would come, or partners, whoever, and we'd have these conversations. So throughout my growing up, there were all these things which seemed completely normal, which only when I left New York did I realize what, a, it wasn't what normal. an incredibly unusual... <laughs> I mean, look, I had there was a jazz critic for the Village Voice who was in the apartment adjacent to ours. And like other kids would go to sleep listening to nursery rhymes. I would go to sleep listening to Charlie Parker and Coltrane and Miles through the walls of my apartment building, because this guy would stay up till two, three in the morning, you know, reviewing music, because so, he was writing reviews. It was just like on and on and on. These stories just like over and over and over again. My mom worked with uh, Robert De Niro's mother as typists, you know. And so when I left, I said, Doug, you had such an unusual, and I think that's what sort of prepared me and sort of wired me for not wanting to do one particular type of sort of software. I'm looking for software that kind of pulled together different pieces because my whole life has been all these different themes that somehow kind of hung together. And this just this underlying idea of just kind of progressive thinking and looking forward and trying to solve problems I think it was all baked into me at, uh, you know, growing up in the village at that time. I feel really lucky. You know, we didn't have a lot of money. It was only me and my brother and my mom. But, you know, be careful what you wish for, what you regret. I was so happy in retrospect because I see so many people who just had the most boring lives in the world. And mm -hmm. I say, how on earth could you? I would go crazy if I'd grown up in the suburbs. The sad thing is, New York is now changing. Everything is changing now because everyone's getting gentrified. And it's, you know, it's sort of the money element is sort of creeping in to New York. So it's changing. It's not the same place. But I was lucky. I was lucky to be there when I was. Based on those experiences that you have, do you think that that kind of 
instilled in you this knack of problem solving that you I think, carried on? I think what it did is I knew I was not drawn to traditional types of work. And I think one of the things about software, you know, software is such a new profession. We don't really talk about this enough. But when I went, immediately when I got to grad school, I started seeing people, oh, this one came from music. And then they found software and they were interested. They went off to study. And this one came. People from very different disciplines seem to arrive at software for very different reasons, which is non-traditional, right? If you're going to be a doctor, there's a progression. If you're going to be a lawyer, there's a specific progression, right? If you're going to be an engineer, you go through these steps and you arrive. Software is nothing like that. And I liked that. That felt natural to me. That said, well, you know, and you had oddballs and weirdos and people who would come to work at 10 o'clock at night and work till six in the morning. Just I love this crazy because that was the kind of environment that felt normal to me. I mean, after grad school, I went to work at Apple. And there was a guy who lived in a treehouse in the hills of Santa Cruz Mountains. And he'd come to work at Apple. It wasn't even unusual. That is probably what kept me in software. But the hook was the pictures. The hook was the visual. And where that came from, I, I don't know what that is. I love photography. I love light. I love lighting. I love, you know, the endlessly interested in, you know, the way light interacts with surfaces and all those visual kinds of things. And it all kind of comes together with, with computer graphics. And data visualization is not that exactly, but it is visual fundamentally. So it's the way my brain is wired. I couldn't really do much else. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do much else. Let's go back to that time right before you started working for Apple. Yeah. You were at UNC Chapel Hill, yeah. like you mentioned earlier. And that was kind of the, the turning point there. Tell me what happened. That was a tremendous. So I got to Chapel Hill, and it was my interest in computer graphics that made prompted me to want to go to grad school. Actually, before... I went to grad school. I had an undergraduate degree in engineering. Don't ask me why I got a degree in engineering. But when I was in New York, I went to Stuyvesant, which is like this, this sort of the premier, like the number one public high school there. And everyone there is geeky. So I said, well, I guess I should go be an engineer. And when you're young, you know, you just kind of walk along a certain path. I didn't even know I had these other interests. But when I somehow found out about computer graphics. And man, that just lit a rocket under my butt. And I, so I found Chapel Hill. Chapel Hill was a particular type. They, it's a re, basically a, a research university. They do a lot of government research, and write lots of papers, very specifically focused on, actually it's an area that's kind of hot right now, which is virtual reality. So we call it virtual worlds. It's the idea of using specifically interactive 3D graphics, immersive 3D graphics as to drive problem solving in three main areas. So one was chemistry, the other one was architecture, and the other one was medicine. So they were doing things like using actual force feedback devices to manipulate molecules. So if you could imagine head-mounted display and sort of gadgets that would let you visualize molecules and interact with the molecules with force feedback, all virtual, all simulated. And then doing things like visualizing radiation beams. So there are these crazy 3D graphics 
guys. And oh, by the way, building their own computer graphics hardware. So not just doing software. They were building you know, machines that you could not buy in the marketplace. At UNC Chapel Hill, they were building these amazing parallel graphics machines. And I would get to write demos for these machines. In Some of them, I think, we use languages you can't even use nowadays. So it was all of it. It was hardware, it was software, and it was just this crazy world. I said, oh my, it's like I felt like I had gone down a rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland. I was like, what the heck? In, in Chapel Hill, right? So this is North Carolina. Right. And <laughs> it's actually that research triangle area. So it's, you know, it's, yeah, it's, North, it's, um, it's Chapel, Chapel Hill, Hill, Raleigh, Durham, Durham and, Raleigh. and Raleigh. Yeah. So there's similar things going on at Duke, in, uh, I think at um, North Carolina State as well. But Chapel Hill was kind of like the, the real engine. And it was just, I could not be happier. You know, it was, and just, again, it was just kind of this funky kind of group of people. There are people from China, the people from other countries. There are, and that really was, it was great. It was just a wonderful, we used to do this. So there's a big annual conference called SIGGRAPH. Mm -hmm. which is a special interest group. It's like an ACM, Association of Computer Machinery. Yeah. They're a special annual conference for 3D graphics geeks. And we would typically do demos for this, you know, which is there's like maybe a handful of universities that would be doing demos at this conference. It's an international conference. So I started hanging out in a particular tribe of people, 3D graphics, researchy and it was like heaven it was just heaven it was just a wonderful wonderful time and that set everything up for me that was my passion that was what i wanted and off i went you know apple when we were getting close to graduation apple came calling they were looking for people who knew about 3d graphics they basically vacuumed up about a half a dozen of us and uh, we went to work for apple in their advanced technology group looking at the use of 3D graphics, either for building APIs or actually sort of maybe we could use 3D for interfaces. Should we have 3D interfaces? We basically got to play and, and do research. So that was great. That was how I got from Chapel Hill to to Silicon Valley, Cupertino. From the chapel to Apple. From the chapel to Apple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And also, I think, you know, it's sort of funny because I'm a New Yorker and, you know, I don't know if you know too many people from New York. It's very tough to get New Yorkers to leave New York. But yeah. once I crossed the Hudson, man, and I got to Chapel Hill and they even told people, I'm going back to New York when I'm done here. This is great, but I got to go. I got to go. And then something just began to shift in terms of my own personal growth. I started becoming more interested in, well, yes, I'll go to, you know, yes, I want to go to the Valley. And yet I just, like, the world began to open up mm -hmm. in just kind of just a developmental kind of way. I think a lot of people who stay in New York, they think that's the world. It's not the world. There's a big world out there. Yeah. And, yeah, it was just great. You know, I also like the fact that it was an international, it was a collection of international people, which I hadn't really been around before. And I found that very exciting and very, again, yeah, it's just all good. It's just lots of good, good, good stuff. And also you sort of, you know, UNC, there was a collection of universities who had a big rep in terms of their prowess 
and the reputation and doing high quality research. And yeah. so I was amongst this tribe, this sort of club, and that club moved to Apple. And, you know, there was also another company, Silicon Graphics. My, actually, my wife is a computer scientist as well, who I met in graduate school. Okay. And she was in the Valley as well. So we kind of moved in this circle I'm sure there must have been parallel circles, you know, in other dom in other areas of computer science. But this is when computer graphics was just beginning to blow up and go crazy and movies were using it and and so it was a very very special kind of time. Super optimistic 3D. Everything's going everything's going to be 3D interfaces yeah. and, and it didn't quite work out that way, but it seems to be coming back <laughs> now with Facebook doing Oculus Rift and these sort of things. But yeah, it was a good sort of wandering here a bit. But it was it was just a wonderful. And I should point out that the principal investigator I worked with is Fred Brooks, who is sort of this known name in computer science. He wrote a wonderful book called The Mythical Man Month, which is about the problems with adding people. He wrote a book that was sort of a seminal book in terms of thinking about software and software teams and the activity of writing software. He coined this word called thought stuff. This is what he would call software. So again, it's almost like I call it sort of the Forrest Gump approach to your career. I kind of just wandered through these worlds and just was so lucky to wander into these groups of amazing people, smart and interesting and, and generous and... And you've mentioned Fred Brooks, and one of Fred Brooks's biggest achievements from what I remember, because I started out taking computer science in college for like a semester, and then I switched over to, to math. Yeah. But one of the things that I remember learning about him was that he talked to IBM about changing – it was the IBM 360 yes, series. Yes, that, that was him. He was IBM 360. That was – Yeah, and he talked them like from changing it from – six-bit bytes to eight-bit bytes so they could use lowercase yeah. letters because yes. back yes. then everything was all caps. Yes. yes, wow, that's huge. That's amazing that you know that. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. The thing about Fred, I mean, he's just, it's so important, especially when you're younger or earlier in your career, that the people that you come in contact with, because... He was just one of those people, you know, there are certain people who you work with that just by their, their character and the way they interact with people, he was just one of those people that you know you won't forget and will have a huge, everyone who worked, he had a huge impact on. Plus, he did all that work on 360, and he goes off into computer graphics and leads this amazing effort to build to build a computer specifically for doing graphics right so like that yeah. the graphics cards that are now in pcs we were building these machines they were like refrigerator sized machines where you had a chip powering like every pixel on the display so there are these big honking machines and we made the chips that we actually made the chips in the university so it was everything it was like an everything world, every aspect of computer graphics we touched on, and that was all driven by, by Fred. It was a wonderful thing. 
It's a great thing. Let's talk about the time that you worked at Apple because you were at Apple. I mean, I saw this from your LinkedIn. You were there from like 1988 to 1996. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was late. I left just before. Steve Jobs came back. So it was just mm-hmm. in the midst of the doldrums. But we were in, in research. Yeah, you, I think you started like when he left, you started. And then when you left, well, no, when you started, he had left. And then when you left, he came back. Yes. Like they brought him back. Yeah, the prodigal son had returned, indeed. <laughs> yes, yes. It's so crazy. You know, it, Apple is this crazy place where I think at the time we had just horrible market share, but it didn't matter. Yeah. Because at Apple, you have to understand it, it, Apple and Cupertino is that the address of Apple is one infinite loop. So that tells you all you need to know. The sidewalk is sort of this wavy sidewalk. And if you're at Apple, there's nothing else. You know, you could be inside this wonderful building. It's a beautiful campus. We had beautiful offices. And it didn't matter because we were all kind of drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, of Apple. And the thing about Apple is Apple has always done exactly the same thing. This is what I think is so unusual. You know, the iPhone blew up whole sections of the cell phone industry, and they don't even realize it. In fact, that wasn't even their focus. It's not like Steve Jobs and Johnny Ive said, let's make a device to go take over the cell phone industry. They said, this is what we think people want to hold in their hand. Mm -hmm. You know, this is what we think, how we think a person and a device that is handheld should work. And oh, by the way, it completely obliterated Nokia and Ericsson and all these other companies. And that is kind of the continual mindset of Apple. It's that they don't do focus groups. They don't do market research. They say, you know what, this is what we think. And, you know, hopefully because we're really good and we think about it really, really hard and we care. The big, big thing, the big takeaway for me from Apple, I was there for eight years, was that they are, the scary thing I think for the computer industry is they care so deeply about stuff that other people hardly even notice. Because the Valley is full of tech companies. It's just tech, tech, tech. And here's this one company that says, well, you know, for example, I was working in research. They had a supercomputer at the time I was there. They had a particular computer program that they would use. It ran on a supercomputer to design the texture of the plastic casing for the computers, because when a person touched the surface, they wanted to feel differently than mm-hmm. one of those clunkers made by IBM or these other companies. <laughs> okay? That's how insanely focused on just the most minute details. People just would dream this stuff up. And I, so I was like drinking all that in. I said, Doug, man, where I was going was how many other companies do you know? that think like this. It's not a computer thing. It's not a tech thing. It's a very simple thing. Johnny Ive, their designers, they said, you know what? This is what we care about. It's not like it would be nice to do this. It's like we're going to sweat and kill ourselves to make this. And that is 
you know, that's sort of the gift of that kind of thinking is what I got from Apple. And now, you know, when I'm working, I just can't. I have to design things that look a specific way when they're on the screen. You know, I can't just do it half-assed. I ha- because I think everyone who's been at Apple, uh, for example, anyone who builds an app in iOS, and this is different than Android, mm-hmm. in iOS you feel this pressure that you know how gorgeous the stuff that's already on the device that's made by Apple is. You need to rise to that standard. So yeah. everyone, when you build something, you kind of feel this nudge. <laughs> You've got to push, 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 simpler, easier, less, less, mm-hmm. you know, proportion, color, all of those things. You just are driven just because of the way when you, when you pick the device up and you look in your hand and say, oh, crap, not, it's not good enough. All of that is the Apple thing. I mean, when I was there, I was doing software, but I got introduced to a whole collection of ideas I didn't even know existed because I used to hang around. Because designers, I mean, designer software was all kind of glommed together. We had a group called HIG, the Human Interface Group. You know, people would say, well, have you seen this artist? Have you heard about this person? I forget the woman's name who ran the group, but she just dropped this book on my desk. It's a book about Andy Goldsworth, who's this amazing artist. And it's like completely blew my mind. Edward Tufte, who I've talked about, he is sort of this guru. That's where I first learned about Edward Tufte, who's the guru of dense information presented in a well-designed way is far more powerful than making something that's, quote, simple with a nice interface. In fact, interfaces, his attitude is sort of interfaces are beside the point. Interfaces are distraction. This is the iPhone philosophy. Mm-hmm. If you look at an iPhone, the way you interact with these devices, it's about stripping stuff away. That sort of is another theme. It's like remove, 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 remove until what's essential and important is left and then design the crap out of what's essential so that it's accessible and it's beautiful and it's lovely. Um, you know, all that kind of passion about that stuff, I got at Apple. There's something you mentioned during your time there at Apple where you said that Apple does this thing where they kind of keep, I, I think you said like they keep repeating the same types of things. And, and at the time that you worked for Apple, that was kind of a roller coaster time for the company. Yeah, they, it was, they had these highs because of the Macintosh. You mentioned how they really kind of put a lot of thought into the plastic and everything. But then they also, like you said, had these market share problems because they were also coming out with a lot of consumer products like the Newton. They had a game system. They had like a a set-top box for a while and a music player. But then now you look at the things that Apple is releasing and doing now, and it's just iterated versions of those same things. So instead of the Newton, we've got the Apple Watch. Instead of the set-top box, we have Apple TV. Instead of the music player, we have the iPod. I think if there is a flaw that Apple has, it's sort of you see it. You see it with iTunes. You see it with iCloud. Anytime Apple has to do something that interacts with the outside world that is not fundamentally a device, it struggles. iTunes Mm -hmm. is a mess. You know, iCloud 
I don't use it. They're devices you want to sort of put on a little shrine and light a candle and worship <laughs> because that is, you know, companies, ha organizations have a DNA. And in the little ecosystem of the device and piece of glass, piece of metal, mm -hmm. make an enjoyable experience about that device there's no one even in the same solar system, as far as I'm concerned, because, because of what they don't do, right? There are, you know, some of these Android phones are wonderful, but for my taste, there's a lot there. Apple is saying, no, you're not going to have this. You won't have that. And I think when they do these services, they just are out of their depth. I don't know what that's about, but so be it. But for me, the real historical, you know, when we look at the historical record of what's important, sort of in this period of time, it will be how they figured out that this idea of gesture, when you swipe something, it doesn't just stop, it sort of slowly decelerates and, and sound and color, all of those things. The yeah. only reason they're there is because Someone cared about that, right? I mean, you would, at other tech companies, it would be like, what are you doing, man? we got to ship this product. Why are you wasting your time figuring out the right acceleration rate? That product would have shipped six months earlier. And it would have 10 times as many features. That's what Android is, right? That's the mess of Android. That's actually the problem with Android. See, Google could, and I don't quite understand why this didn't work, Google, I think, bought Motorola, and they had a, they could make their own devices. And I thought, okay, well, they're going to try and give iPhone sort of a run for their money. But I think the DNA of Google is engineering. Yeah. The DNA of Apple is this other thing. It's this, I care, I care, I care, I care. My God, I really care about this thing. I'm going to power that experience by software. Johnny Ives is not a software guy. You know, his team are not software people. He uses software people as the means of creating the experience he's after. It's very, very, very different. I don't know how many companies, I don't, can't think of any other companies like this. And the bizarre thing is, the amazing thing is, it's the most valuable company in the world. This, to me, is amazing. Because they tapped into this thing. You know, you go into the Apple store and people do things with these devices. I know I'm sounding like a total fanboy, Apple fanboy. I, you know, I've used Linux. I'm perfectly happy using a Linux machine. You know, I've used Windows machines. I'm just sort of like reporting. I'm, at yeah. least I'm trying to report. And that is you look at what go into an Apple store and just, especially children, look what they do unconsciously without even thinking with these devices. And then go into like the Microsoft store. Or do they have that? They're trying to knock off Apple store. They have a Microsoft, <laughs> you know, or whatever. It's a very, very different thing. It's, they're trying to create this. Well, they have. They're not trying. They've accomplished it. They've created the most addictive piece of technology that's ever existed. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah, here in one of the malls here in Lenox Square, we've got 
a Microsoft store. We also have an Apple store. Apple store is always busy, always packed. Every time I walk by that Microsoft store, it's a ghost town. Yeah, I I mean, it's almost like a... It's not even worth mentioning because it's like they're playing two completely different games. The set of concerns... And see, the thing is, I have seen... If you look in completely other industries, like maybe some furniture manufacturers or some some companies that make physical things that you hold that are not powered by technology, you see these concerns being addressed and being the focus. This this insane attention to every single detail. You see it in fashion, you see it in industrial design. You do not see it in software. You do not see it in the tech world. And that is going to be what I think the legacy of Apple. But the scary thing is, it's not rocket science. And they've been doing it so long. When did iPhone come out in 2007? You've been doing it long enough that all you have to do is copy what these people are doing to kind of even be in the ballpark. What I don't understand is, why aren't there a dozen, a hundred companies doing a similar sort of thing. I think Nest is doing the same thing because the, the guy from Apple, I forget his name, who's doing Nest, that got bought by Google. Everybody's trying to get it. I think there are some services now like Airbnb as a service feels like Apple. I mm-hmm. think Uber wants to feel it kind of, even though... You know, that could, yeah, that might be a stretch. Might, <laughs> even, though, even though that might be a stretch, but, but I mean... Slack, for example. Yeah. Feels. You have these really big tech companies that are focused more on design, and that's really something yes. that Apple's yes. led the charge yeah, on. That's right. So I want to move forward from Apple. I know looking through your bio, you spent a large amount of time in Iceland. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was the journey going from <laughs> Apple to Iceland? So my wife is Icelandic. She, okay. she, uh, so we're both software people. You know, we met at, in Chapel Hill in North Carolina. And you know, when you do software, we sort of looked at each other at some point and said, Helga, we could do this anywhere. Why don't we just go to Iceland for a while? <laughs> did, did they have internet there? She said, yeah, they have internet. <laughs> <laughs> because the company she was working for, Silicon Graphics, said, well, you can work for us from Iceland which to me sounded insane. We said, fine, great. So off we went. So we were working, like, you know, we show up and a month later we're working remote for a company I used to drive past in the valley. So it was kind of crazy. But yeah, so we were there. We went there with our daughter, who was, I think, two at the time. And we had a second child in Iceland. I was there for eight years and it was wonderful. You know, on a number of levels, I this really isn't so much about tech, but about, you know, I learned about what it really means to be American, for example. I mean, I think we in the States, we don't really understand sort of what, you know, you can say, well, this one's a Swede and this one's a Czech and this one's Italian. Americans, we don't really know kind of who we are. And being there and spending enough time away from the States allowed me to get a better understanding of that. And that was that was really kind of special. So, I mean, that's the value for anyone. I mean, basically... It's sort of one of my recommendations for people is as soon as you get some money, or as soon as you get some time, go travel and spend some time outside the States. It'll be the same when you come back. It'll be here. It's not going anywhere. Go travel and you'll find out a hell of a lot. And I sure did. It was great. What, was that transition <laughs> difficult at first? 
Oh, no, no. Just to kind of break down Scandinavia. So Iceland is considered part of Scandinavia. There seems to be some discussion. They go back and forth. But they're basically Nordic. So you have Iceland, which is this rock in the middle of the North Atlantic. And you have Denmark and Sweden and Norway. And Finland is kind of, again, it's kind of, it's Nordic, but it's not Scandinavian. But basically, they all are this sort of very group style societies. And I call them all uh, humanist societies. And that is where the type of things that you see happening in America, which we sort of either ignore or just take, well, that's the way, are unheard of in this part of the world. Very young kids, poor children get good education. You know, it's every part of society And, you know, some do it better than others. You just see a society that functions. The only word I could use for it is in a humanistic way. And this was very powerful. It had a big effect on me. And I said, wow, I I get it. I see it. It sounds very egalitarian. You have to be careful as an outsider because you can sort of exaggerate. And I think it takes a few years to kind of really try and see it clearly. But put it this way. I was there for eight years. I think there was one murder. Wow. And again, it's a small country. It's 300,000 people. But, you know, still, you do the math. So basically, in in Iceland, they sort of say, you know, one person. It's like a thousand to one ratio. Still. You send your kids out, they go play. There's no helicopter parenting. My daughter would work from school to music school when she was little. No one even, no concern whatsoever. Uh Healthcare is cheap. You go down the list. Preschool, all of it, it's all there. Everyone takes their kids. If you have a child, you get six months off. Maternity leave, on and on and on and on and on. All across the Nordic area. Now, in terms of work, now, it's kind of interesting. When I got there, we sort of met other computer science folks, and I got invited. There were a few things that happened that really sort of stood out. One was I got invited to, we had coffee with friends of Helga's who had studied in the States, and they came back to Iceland to teach at the University of Iceland. And when they found that I was, you know, my area was computer graphics, they said, would you be interested in teaching a seminar? I said, whoa, yeah, sure. And so I put together a whole curriculum. I called it tangible computing. So I was talking about this idea of using the interaction between tangible devices and computability. I was talking about visual effects. I talked about virtual reality. One semester course, we met once, I think, once or twice a week. And I just, you know, I just went for it. And you have to understand, so I'm this American teaching Icelanders, whose first language is not English, but they all, of course, they all speak English. Mm-hmm. And it, I enjoyed it. It was great. But, but one of the weird things was, in the States, if you're in a class that kids are always raising their hand, they're always talking back, it's just like, it's craziness. In Iceland, no response. It's like pulling teeth trying to get people to ask questions because... I think there's a bit of a stigma about if you ask questions in a classroom, it sounds like you don't know a thing, and that's like, but it used to be very, what I remember was very quiet teaching, (laughs) and one of the problems was I could not gauge 
the feedback, am I going too fast? Am I, are people understanding this? I had an end of the year project where people had to do a project and they got up to talk. And then because the students review the teacher, all of them gave me full marks. Like I think it was seven out of seven, which completely blew my mind. Mm. So they loved it. And that, I thought that was wonderful. It was great. So that was sort of a teaching experience. And there was one other experience. I was working for a, a startup and we were doing, so that was mobile before iPhone. So a lot of it had to do with text messaging. We were looking at ideas of, there were some devices, that, there were PDAs and you could do pictures on PDAs. And I was doing things with panoramas. Maybe we could put panoramas. So it was a little startup looking at how to do interesting visuals on small devices. And the company was started by an architect who also did work in GIS, so Geographic Information Services. And so I was working in my office once, and periodically we would do talks. At, there would be conferences, and people from the company might give a talk. And one of the guys from a company knocks on my door. He said, hey, Doug, I have to give this talk. And there was a guy who I think had studied GIS specifically. I think he had a master's in it. He said, would you give this talk for me? I said, what? What are you talking about? He said, yeah, you see, it's going to be this international conference, and I'm just an Icelander, but you're American. You see, if an American gets up and talks, they'll lean forward, they'll listen. If just the Icelandic guy gets up and talks, they won't really pay as much attention. Interesting. And, you know, and that, I thought that blew my mind. Because I really started getting a sense of, you know, there's an American style that we have. There's a way we talk. There's sort of an attitude. There's a... Perception? Well, if you listen to Scandinavia, actually, I would say everyone, all Northern Europeans, I hate to put them all in one bucket. But if I were to say one thing, it would be they couldn't market their way out of a paper bag. Because we for some reason, are all programmed to know how to pitch, to know how to sell here in the States, because we hear it all the mm -hmm. time. We have a certain style where we're enthusiastic. And uh, whereas Swedes, you know, Icelanders, Germans, they just drone on, and they drone on, and they drone on. They don't know how to kind of get a crowd interested in something. I thought that was very interesting. I, I was completely un, unaware of it. So that's something you and I and everyone in the States has for free, and we don't even know it. And it was actually, it's kind of funny. Over time, you know, there were other foreigners who were in, in Iceland. Like, we sort of formed this little group. There's two Americans, three Americans, and one Canadian. And there's one other black guy, and the other American was a white guy from, actually from Boston. And the other guy was a white guy from Canada. This black guy's name was Weldon. I said, you know, it's like we often joked about how it was like taking a vacation from being black. <laughs> it, it, was like, it was like this one of, in fact, when I went back to the States, I said, Weldon's well, it's back to being black. I'll see, I'll see you later. I'm going back to the States. <laughs> um, because as soon as you arrive in, the, in this part of the world, you're American. Oh. And it's like, and it's not like a good thing. It's not like a no, business. no, no. I, it's I not. Could, yeah, it's could, kind of like, especially not now. No, it's not. It's not a you know, it, it's 
it's a mixture. It's I would say it's ambivalence. But the big thing was we were Americans. <laughs> it was hilarious, and it was just so. I don't know how to describe it because when you're in the states, you sort of I think feel you feel it. It's almost like someone described it as a sound that you just stop hearing anymore. It's like there's been a buzzing in your ear, and as soon as you get off the plane in Keplavik, and you get on the bus, and you get it's gone. Of course, everyone is white, and most people are blonde. And you know, I asked a friend of mine. His name is Magnus. I said, Magnus, why do people seem so open here? Why do people? Is this in my head? He said, Well, Doug, you know, it's not so much that we're open. It's just that we're just sort of curious about everyone, because Icelanders, you have to understand, in small countries, I think Japan is a similar. People have a very strong sense of who they are. They have a very strong sense of being. Icelandic, because there's mm-hmm. only a three hundred thousand of them, and they're in the middle yeah. of the ocean, and they got to do it all themselves. Sense of community. They're deep. Yes, these are group societies. That part of the world, they're a group. And what he said sort of stuck with me, and I often think the reason one of the themes in the states is no one really knows. No one has that sense of I know exactly who I am in the states, white, black, whatever. Everyone, all these immigrants. It's America. It's an experiment. Everyone's an immigrant, or was brought here on a boat, you know, against their will. No one sort of has this sense, or they contrive it, or they make it up. We constantly invent ourselves and everything. In Iceland, generation after generation, they know exactly who they are. Everywhere I would go, if we would bump into someone, it wouldn't be long before they start saying, "Well, who's?" Hang on, you're so and so's daughter. Okay, now who is she related to? And it could be like a twenty, thirty minute conversation about yeah. their families. It's even reflected like in their last names. Like the last names are either something son, someone's, or something yes, that's right. daughter, someone's son or someone's daughter. Everyone's yes, yes. And that struck me, and I think it cleared up a lot for me about how to think about. Ignorance and prejudice and these sort of things in the states. People form tribes here, and they, they're sort of holding on to something. People probably don't even understand why they feel that way, because just out of habit. So anyway, I, I don't claim to have any deep insight into any of this. It was just an observation that the fact that these people knew exactly who they were freed them in a way. To not get hung up about people who were different. I mean, there are issues. I mean, there could be an issue, for example, with immigration because it's a small country. And it's like, okay, we have immigrants coming in. How many? Do we care? This is sort of becoming a topic, especially there's all these people emigrating out of Syria, and there's all these discussions. How many should we let into Iceland? Should we? Whatever. But you know, at least for Americans, if you're black. It's a great, it's a great place to go <laughs> because it's just, it's there, and people, you're American. That's the end of the story. Go, let's go have a beer, you know, that kind of thing. So, so with that time that you spent in Iceland, and then eventually you came back here to the states, did all of that time in Iceland and like these insights and things that you pick up, is that really kind of what pushed you into what you're doing now with kind of giving back to the community here in terms of teaching about software? Well. 
I just got sick to my stomach to, enough to finally get off my behind and say, Doug, you've got to do something because this is a tragedy. I don't. It's a scandal, tragedy, whatever you want to word. You've got terrible schools for black kids. I mean, the people I interacted with throughout my career, as I moved through my career, education was huge. And that's part of it. So this, it's twofold. Part of it is what a horrible scandal. And of course, America's not going to do anything about it. So, Doug, at least go and talk to children. And the other part is just, my God, what an amazing journey I have been on. I have got to tell these kids about this because yeah. I call it the everything technology, all right? Software is not really software anymore. Software is now under powering everything, right? It is now the magic superpower special bullet. If you can write software, you can dip into any industry. I'm interested in, I'm interested in genomics. Boom, I can go do visualization. I'm interested in architecture. Boom, you can go do visualization. Visual, write visualization. You can go to work for a vendor who makes it. Fine. I'm interested in you name it. Everything is powered by software. I've got to get children understanding this and seeing this and hearing this. Plus, I just love kids. I love talking to kids. And, but it's mostly driven just by the, I'm sick to my stomach, about... You know, it's like the, the whole diversity issue of how few blacks there are in the industry. Got to do something. But at the same time, I realize, my God, this feels like a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have Yes, We Code. We have Black Girls Code. We have All-Star Code, which are wonderful. We have Level Playing Field Institute in Oakland. A bunch of efforts. This is tremendous. This is wonderful. But my God, look what we have to do. Put that in relief against a society that just benignly sits there. I did some talking in the Bronx, and I went to into a public school there. I was working with Camp Interactive, which is another one of these wonderful organizations in New York. And it is literally like going into a prison. The cops are sitting there. You've got the metal detectors, crappy interior, crappy lighting. And I sit and I come in, and I have kids playing with iPads, and I'm looking around. I said, how on earth. How on earth can I change anything? That is the feeling I have. Personally, I think what needs to happen is you need to give someone like Kimberly Bryant, who runs Black Girls Code, you need to give her about $50 million or $100 million and let her run with it and let her set up training centers all over the country. I mean, you need to put serious dollars behind this. You know, there's the whole issue of diversity and tech. The issue is not diversity. The issue is we have lived in a segregated society and kids have grown up and gone to grad school and gotten out of grad school or gone to undergrad and gotten a degree and found white kids and they find themselves into companies and they don't know. There is zero interaction between and this kind of circles back to my youth. In my youth, I had interactions with every imaginable type of person from birth. When I was in kindergarten, I went to school with an American Indian kid, Puerto Rican kids, you name it, they were there. Irish kid, whatever. It was New York. Mm -hmm. There's a generation now of kids growing up 
they are in a hermetically sealed environment. There's, Ru- yeah. there's Russian, there's white, there's Russian, there's uh, South Asian, so Middle Eastern, whatever. There will be no black people that they will have any interaction with. And so they arrive at a Google, they arrive whatever, and I know what happens. A hiring manager sits down, a black person comes in, and they freak out. They say, what yeah. the hell am I supposed to do now? Yeah. That's their first interaction with someone who is their intellectual equal, who is not white or Chinese or Korean or blah, 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 blah. I mean, this is insane. What do we expect will happen? So we have to have diversity and, and these efforts, which, of course, yes, yes, good, but man, how screwed up is this? And so it gets into a much bigger problem is of how do we want our society structured? We have zip code segregation here, okay? That is the problem that needs to be solved. And that's not going to be solved by Kimberly Bryant or Allstar Code or Camp Interactive or any of these. They're doing amazing, wonderful work. We can't say enough about what they're doing, but in a society, in a humanistic society, is this the way we would be running things? Is this really the way things would work? This friend of mine, Weldon Thompson, who's black, who's in Iceland, his daughter, he married an Icelander. They have a, a daughter, interracial, fully integrated into her society, doing great, like top marks in mathematics. She's on the national team playing handball. She is integrated into her society. She is a member of her society. This is not the case in the States if you're black, if you're Puerto Rican. If you're poor, you get a mark. You you got that scarlet letter. You are this other thing in 2015. And this is like, like one of the things that makes me particularly sad is I grew up assuming all these problems. You probably grew up the same way. Say, well, you know, when I'm older, it's all going to be handled. So I'm going to take care because progress moves forward. The weird, scary thing is we've kind of gone backwards. But in this hard to recognize modern society, we've actually just gone backwards or at least just sort of, I don't know, sort of tread water or stayed still. But, I, you know, I just noticed, how, you know, how screwed up is this? It's, but, you know, we're talking about Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is in Northern California. Northern California, San Francisco, is one of the most progressive places in the world. If you're having problems like this in Silicon Valley, come on. Forward thinking, open-minded. This is Steve Jobs, where he just stay foolish, stay hungry. All these crazy, open, exploratory types of thinking. What is the problem? This has to do with our society. It can't be solved by Silicon Valley. It has to be solved by the country. This is just me, you know, ranting. You know, I'm not a policy person. I'm a pragmatist. It's a big, big problem, but I have to do something. So I have to talk to kids. You know, I have to talk to girls. You know, when, when I was actually at Apple, there were some women who were in tech. In grad school, there were some women in computer science. I think things have also gotten worse there. Oh, absolutely. It's, we're always here. We're always hearing about some kind of incident of sexism or misogyny or something like that. But it's like, in the tech but it's like, it's like, hang on a second. When I was at Apple... There's a woman who was, I mean, there were a lot of women. There was a woman who we worked with, Libby Patterson, who I worked with in ATG. I mean, it was great. It was great. It was great for me. You know, I'll tell you a story, man. When I was at Apple, we were in research. We were working on this panoramic technology. So you look at 
Street View that's in Google. Mm-hmm. Before there was Street View, it was like basically no panoramas, no nothing. So we were working on, actually, I was not one of the inventors. There was Eric Chen, Ken Tuchowski, there's a group of guys who invented, Lance Williams, who invented the idea of taking a series of pictures, stitching them together, and making them interactive, and putting them on, at the time, putting them on a CD-ROM player. That's how old this technology was. I was an ATG. It's like the only black guy in our group. I'm an ATG. And I say, you know what? And I started playing around with the browser. Netscape was sort of just sort of happening. I said, you know what? We should put this in a browser. Then we could have these kind of like virtual tours all around the world. Wouldn't that be cool? Nobody was interested because we were selling, because CD-ROMs were selling like hotcakes. We had gotten invited down to Hollywood. We did a tour of Star Trek The Next Generation it was like selling, I think they sold 300, 400,000 copies. I said, oh, what are you talking about? We're doing great here. So for 50 days, I come in every day, weekends. First of all, I figure out how to make the technology run as a plugin in a browser. There were no plugins. It was like probably one of the first plugins ever written. I work on a website. I do all this stuff myself. And people are saying, what are you doing? What are you? I, said, I just have to do this. And when I finished, people said, this is terrific. We have to do this. So it flipped. And I was given the leeway. I wasn't getting, oh, and like, what are you doing? You know, I wasn't getting any sort of negative vibes. It was wonderful. I don't know. Has the climate changed so much in 2015 that I couldn't have done that? I don't know. It's hard for me to tell. It sounds like it is. It sounds like something fundamentally has changed in the makeup of the young, mostly white men working in these environments. And that's on them. None of this will change. And this is the biggest problem. This is sort of the weakness in the whole diversity argument, is it is dependent on someone changing their mindset, someone having a consciousness raising. How do you do that, man? I don't know how that works. I got it for free because I was born that way. And the people I grew up with were born that way. Why is it in a 99.9% white society like Iceland? I mean, it wasn't perfect, but I felt free and open and I invited to teach a course in the universe. I mean, it just felt like, it felt great. It felt like a meritocracy. It felt like a meritocracy. It felt like life. Yeah. And this is just, it makes me very, very sad to think about it because I know how far the mindset has to go just to get back to zero. It feels like we're negative. It's not even progress. It's like, well, could it be as only as screwed up as it was when I was a kid? (laughs) That's kind of my mindset right now. But, you know, one thing about Americans, of all the people, one thing I did learn of all the people in the world, we had this knack for changing. But my God, this one feels really, really hard. Because what is the motivation? What is the driver? There doesn't seem to be any. Our societies are segregated. Our schools are segregated. Every dimension, right, that there's a shoot, the wealth gap, just you name it, it just piles on and piles on. And the biggest thing is just to pass, I think, that that bothers me, because I grew up with activists. I grew up with people who were politically active. Grace Paley would get arrested and go to jail, and we would talk to her (laughs) from the street, is the passivity 
of Americans. Mm. Just like sheep. When you look at the gun violence, who are these people? Who are we? I mean, I am, I'm American, you know. What is it? I could go on and on, but this, this isn't really the focus. It shouldn't, this is... Well, no, no, no. This is, this is good. This is the like deep thought that we need to be having, particularly as it relates around kind of the longevity of this industry, making sure that it perpetuates on into the future, because certainly if it keeps on as it is now, that's not going to happen. It can't. And I know, I mean, it's sort of a bizarre thing to say to little black kids and brown kids. It's, you know software. You can do this anywhere. Because this phenomenon that we focus on the valley, right? We say, you don't understand. This is happening simultaneously with the same amount of excitement in Barcelona, Berlin, Amsterdam, Copenhagen, Stockholm. Tallinn in Estonia, Helsinki, rooms full of young people, headphones, hacking, websites, iOS apps, Android apps, same thing, same vibe, same energy around the entire globe. I mean, you can pick up and work anywhere. I could go, yeah. I could go to Berlin right now and get a job. I can go to Stockholm, get a job. I can go to Copenhagen, get a job. Because of this magic, and any of these kids... And any of these children could because of this magic pill, this magic superpower of being able to write software. If you're really good, you never look for work again. Well, what keeps you motivated? I mean, who do you admire? Who do you look for to, for inspiration and things like that? I hear a lot about people need mentors and, and this sort of thing. Did you have any mentors? You know, I was a very self-directed kid. Uh -huh. And my brother, I think, was the same. Here was my attitude. My attitude was, okay, that looks interesting. It kind of scares the hell out of me, but let me go try it. What's the worst that could happen? And my motto is, and this is my motto for kids, what is the worst that could happen? I haven't had mentors. I've had people who were deeply influential, designers, you know, Carlos Scarpa, Samo Noguchi, artists primarily. There have been tech people I've worked with. Lance Williams, the guy who invented MipMaps. Pete Litwinowitz, a guy I worked with who was at UNC, who's now in San Francisco. There are people who I've worked with. Fred Brooks, of course. He wasn't really... A, I wouldn't call them mentors. When I think of a mentor, there's someone who sort of guides you. I didn't need a guide. I just needed... And because I'm just, I've just been so curious about everything, I just needed to be able to know something existed. I don't think this works for everyone because I'm comfortable being in situations where I'm kind of scared. And this actually started as soon as I, when I started doing consulting on my own, I, I would cold call people, I would research people and say, let's go have coffee. In fact, my solution to the world's problems is go have coffee with someone. That's how we solve all these problems. Basically, you find someone doing something interesting. If you want to work with them, Google stalk them, research them, find out what they do, find out what they're interested in, go ask them to have coffee. And that's basically what I would do. And then I started doing more public speaking, which I wasn't comfortable with, and I got comfortable doing that. And the thing I did at Apple with QuickTime VR, doing these panoramas, I didn't know I was going to succeed. I just knew I had to do it. I had to see this thing in a browser. I just, I just could see it. I had to do this. People were saying, what the hell are you doing? I said, no, 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 I have to do this. So... I think a mentor is great 
But for me, it was sort of, yeah, okay, I don't need it, really. I don't think that's the answer maybe <laughs> you're looking for. I, th no, I, I, mean, I that's, think for that's... many people, it would be marvelous. Of course, I mean, I, I hope, you know, by speaking to kids, I can be a mentor to, to others. But one of the things I want to tell children, in fact, this, I'd sell this to anyone who, who is willing to listen, is you must do projects for yourself. I was telling this to kids in the Bronx, the Bronx Community Charter School. I said, get a journal, get a little diary, write things down that you're interested in. Make a little project just for yourself. It doesn't matter who else sees it. Create a problem that you want to solve. You need to see yourself solving a problem or overcoming a challenge that you set up yourself that you didn't think you could accomplish. And when you do, and you basically just need one. And for me, this project at Apple was the one. When I saw myself do that, I basically knew I didn't intellectualize it. I knew it sort of in my body. Holy crap. And I remember, I said to him, I said, Doug, remember this, man. You did this thing. And remember, this is like Apple. This is smart, smart, smart everywhere. They said, no, why are you doing this? And I went and did it. I said, Doug, you know what? Put it in your back pocket. Remember this. And just go do whatever the hell you want. That's what children need. More than a mentor. Because a mentor will go. The mentor will go away. The teachers will go away. You'll hear no from lots of people. You'll constantly hear no. What children need, what young people need, more than anything else, is to see themselves accomplish a problem that they themselves have set up that they decided is important, and then do it again. And then stretch a little bit more. And do something a little bit more scary. And one of the great things I think kids should do, I know, is talk to people. This whole go have coffee with someone, I mean, maybe an eight-year-old kid can't do that sort of thing, but, <laughs> but speaking to people who do it, anyone who's doing something interesting, you go and talk to them. That's yeah. basically been my attitude. Holy crap, that's interesting. When I, that's how I got to UNC. Henry Fuchs was talking about computer graphics. I said, I have to go talk to this guy. I went up to him at his talk and said, I want to go to your school. I didn't know who the hell this was. When I got my first software job, I went into the job. I hadn't had a job doing software. I came in with a briefcase with the listing for a computer game I had written in Assembler. <laughs> and I showed it to the guy. I said, I want to come work here. And so I got in my head. And it worked. So every time it worked, there's no hard and fast, especially in software. I probably should have said this earlier. Especially in software, there are no hard and fast rules. This is not engineering. This is not medicine. This is software. Go do something, put it on GitHub, and then show it to someone. I don't care if you're eight years old. Especially if you're eight years old, show it to someone. Go create a body of work for yourself. People will say no, you say whatever. Go do it. I'm, in fact, I'm so used to hearing no that I feel a little uncomfortable when I don't hear it. That's how you should be. That's how young people should be. They should go do something that stretches them, that scares the hell out of them, not physically, but sort of intellectually and sort of just over the edge. Because when you do that, then you build a little branch. And then you step out onto that branch and you build another piece. And you just keep building and building and building. And before you know it, you're comfortable with it.
And to other people, it will look like confidence. It's not so much confidence as that's not your focus. Your focus is not whether I'm scared or I'm not scared. Your focus is I'm really passionate about doing this thing. Yeah, well, it's kind of scary. Yeah, whatever. I'm really, I really have to go do this thing. Excuse me, could you, you know, get out of my way? I have to go do this thing. I have to go write this code. <laughs> and what that lets you do, and that kind of gives you the armor, especially if you're black or you're brown, it gives you the armor when you go into this industry where no one looks like you. Because you need to have something that you can hold on to that says, I know who I am. I know what I've done. You know, this guy doesn't think I can do this job. That's okay. I know I can do it. See, I know I can do it. That's on him or that's on her. It doesn't get you the job. It doesn't solve the problem. But it gives you the confidence. It gives you, it gives you the existential. It gives you the power to survive. Because one of the things about software, it's a funny business. Software, it's like, a, like being a writer. Like being a composer, you sit alone. It's all in your head, man. And we don't talk about this enough. You need to have your psyche together. Because especially if you write software, it doesn't work. Oh, my God, I broke the build. Da, da, da. Someone's dependent on me. There are constantly, there's constantly these waves of doubt. Do I believe? Can I do it? Oh, my God, I broke it. Can I do it again? You need to kind of do things to give you the machinery, the confidence to keep it together, keep it together. And if you're black or you're brown or you're a woman, it's just compounded because like, what are you doing here? You shouldn't be here. You shouldn't. All of that, you've got to navigate that. For me, it was a bit easier because I sort of cruised in this club of computer graphics and I had a rep. The school I went to had a rep. I had my ticket punched at Apple. So it, you know what I mean? It kind of gave me some breathing room. The other thing is just, you know, don't focus on the Googles and the Apple. Remember, software is everywhere. Yeah. Go find someone doing something interesting in software. Don't f this focus on Silicon Valley is crazy. I mean, it's, I agree. it's like, huh? it's like, whatever, man. Have you seen what's going on in Berlin? Have you seen what's going on in New York or Chicago or, or I don't know, St. Louis, wherever, everyone in Atlanta, where you are, I don't know, everywhere, right? I mean, it's the same <laughs> phenomenon, a big space, brick walls, tables, computers, hacking, boom. Yeah. I'm kind of rambling, but I'm sorry. No, this is, don't, this is not <laughs> rambling, please, please. Where do you see yourself in the next five years or so that's the first question i want to ask but i also want to ask because you mentioned children so much and you have children i do are they interested in software development and um, programming my like daughter that? so my they're both musical okay so my daughter is actually she's in university right now she's trying to combine well she will combine computer science and music. So she's at Muhlenberg College. It's a small private university in Pennsylvania. And I think there's a lot of kids like her generation, this generation coming up, they're trying to do this mixture. They want to do tech. She likes video games. She likes the art in the video games. She likes the music. And I think she's trying to do a, draw a circle around all of that. And which she can, I think she can do like a dual degree where she gets music and she also gets a computer science degree. 
I think that's interesting. My son, he's, I don't know what my son will end up doing right now. He's in high school. I don't think he's a techie. You know, I don't really push the kids to do anything. I mean, you know, he likes music. I think it'll be a business. He'll probably be, I think he'll run a company that hires software people. That's what I think he'll do. (laughs) (laughs) For me, I'm a, you know, I'm really a sort of a craftsman. You know, I, I take software as the craft. I like the craft of software and I like the domain of data visualization. And you know, software people were, were makers. You know, I, that's another thing. We don't really sort of frame it that way. I like making things. I like the joy of making something, especially like here in, in genomics. I make a thing and scientists use it and they like it. And that is amazingly satisfying. I don't have any grand ambitions of being a CEO of a big company that doesn't interest me. I, I'm happy. I get well paid. And yeah, I, but I definitely want to try, and I've tried, you know, reaching out to Black Girls Code and there's other places to try and do more sort of talking to kids, maybe take an hour, a few hours in the afternoon, but I don't know, they're not particularly interested, <laughs> not interested in hearing what I have to say, which is fine, you know, they want kids to code, but I definitely want to talk more and more to kids. It's just so satisfying, and it's just so desperately, desperately needed. And I wish there were, you know, hordes of others who wanted to link arms with me and spend the day talking. Could you imagine spending a day talking to kids? You have someone doing music production, someone doing visual effects, someone doing what I do, someone doing whatever. And just to paint the picture of the breadth of this transformation, that is what is not being framed with all these efforts. I don't really know how to kind of say this because I'm, because again, it all comes back to, I mean, the needs are so big, it immediately starts looking like something that should be part of a standard curriculum in a school. And a black girl's code can't do that alone. A camp interactive can't do that alone. All-star code can't do that alone. So I kind of know a bit about what should happen but I don't know how to make it work because I'm one guy and I try and reach out and I can't get much traction. So I say, well, at least go and talk to kids. At least do that. Well, hopefully this interview will help with that. You It'll, know, be nice. I mean, It'll be nice. You've really talked so passionately about a lot of this stuff. And really, I think that's what people need to hear. They need to hear something that is going to keep them well, I don't want to say it's going to keep them motivated. They need to hear something that's going to light a fire under them or inside them that's going to make them want to... Well, the, the, see, the thing, I, I know I, I have great, great respect for Kimberly Bryant. I mean, she basically... I've had her on the show. She basically took from nothing, right, and created... I volunteered with to teach her girls. I was at Pace in New York, and I work with seven, eight, and nine-year-old girls. And if you want your mind blown, man, go work with little kids with their little fingers on the little keyboards and they're making websites and they're putting pictures on the website. It will blow your mind. I came away just buzzing and I'm saying, my God, again, that dual feeling, right? Maurice, it was, oh my God, this is unbelievable. And then, holy crap, this should be part of every school. This needs to be in East Harlem. This needs to be in the Bronx. This needs to be, it needs to just be immediately, yesterday embedded. So bittersweet, super excited, but just, you know, overwhelmed by the gulf 
of what needs to be done. That's my feeling. I think that's probably everyone's feeling who who does this. I'm sure it's probably, Kimberly probably feels that way a little bit. Everyone does. This needs serious resources. We're talking easily 100 million nationwide. I could envision, you know, and like when I was in California, when I was in Cupertino, there was a wonderful bookstore called A Clean, Well-Lighted Space for Books. Clean, Well-Lighted There needs to be a clean, well-lighted place for black girls to code. It's like a building and there's food and it's beautiful. It's like any one of these amazing Google campus places or, or Twitter campuses for these kids. Because a lot of them are poor. They need a meal. I mean, this is how it's like basic. Mm-hmm. But you need to flip it. That kind of, when I dream, that's what I would dream about. It's like, my God, imagine. And then these kids go out. And it's not just, it's, it's not just about software. These kids have superpowers. They go out and their own funding, right? I mean, part of this money would be the funding to fund startups. I mean, just completely separate. Forget Silicon Valley. I mean, I, I, mean, I sort of am exaggerating. Don't forget. But in parallel... You need to do an effort, and this takes funding. I mean, I can see it. I know exactly what it would look like, but I can't, I don't know how to do I tried speaking to Level Playing Field Institute. I tried speaking the Kapoor Institute. I mean, you know, no one answers, no one tweets. I mean, they're tweeting, they're, they're doing, but it's impossible to reach these people. Or they have it figured out. They decided this is the way it is. Thanks very much, Doug. We got it handled. Okay, fine. It's interesting that you mentioned that because this is something that I've, I mean, I've thought about and I've certainly heard other people talk about it too in in terms of there's sort of these levels or echelons within the whole diversity and tech conversation. Like you have the people and the organizations and the institutes that are, you know, kind of very visible that are doing the work and, and getting funding here and there. But I don't know if it's not, I don't want to say trickle down, that's not the right word, but there seems to be a division there's a division between the ones that are already out there really doing it and the ones that also have these ideas that want to help them out and help contribute to it. Like it doesn't seem like it's a unified front. Well, this, I tell you something. This is what I found is so interesting. The organizations that are doing this are themselves opaque, slow moving, hard to interact with in an industry that moves at lightning speed. Is all about openness and open software and all these other aspects. So it's this weird dichotomy. It's like, hang on a sec. Uh, <laughs> but but I have to think. I think I, I mean I'm sort of being a little bit disingenuous because they seem to be the funding is an issue. They just don't have the resources. A lot of these places, I'm sure, are, are run by uh, volunteer efforts. Yeah. And again, it brings us back. My God, of course, this is a societal effort. This should be a government. I mean, I know it's a dirty word in the States, but, you know, in most civilized (laughs) countries, the the people who feed you and take care of your health, you know, they actually do that job. That's what they're there for. Of course it should be. Department of Education should be working with Kimberly. They should be working with all these. They should be integrating everything they're doing. Maybe they are. I don't know. But... It feels like a Herculean effort. But on the flip side, software is a, another thing about software. You only need about two or three people to do something crazy. I mean, Twitter started with how many people? 
you know, Airbnb. I mean, the, the, a lot of these projects, um, Instagram, I think started with three or four people. It's a multi-billion dollar company. So you can get crazy leverage from just a small team. So, you know, you go and you talk to kids and my God, if you get half a dozen and they get it together and they get their skills together and they go and do something and I don't know, you know, we hope, you know, you have to hope, you have to be optimistic. And one thing about talking to kids, man, when I talk to these kids in the Bronx, I started talking about apps, the hands go up. I mean, I have to tell you, I went to the Bronx, Bronx Community Charter School. I started talking about software and then finally, I just mentioned that I build apps, and that kids went nuts. The hands go up, and instead of me, of me talking, it was basically Q&A and hearing ideas about ideas for apps from fifth graders, sixth graders. So we spent the afternoon talking about apps. The desire is there. The curriculums have to adapt. The curriculums are so out of date at these places. Every single area of teaching can have a software component, especially the sciences, physics, biology, all of these can have a software component. And I talk about, I, I have this idea of the hook, where you use software as the hook to bring them through the discipline of bio, through the discipline of physics, mathematics, visualization, can be used as a hook. So, but this has to be a nation, this has to be a consensus where we lock arms. The country says, yes, we need to do this. My friend uh, Weldon, this, the, the black guy was with in Iceland. He's in Estonia now. He said they're teaching fifth graders programming in Estonia, in Tallinn, right now, in Helsinki. They're teaching programming. The society has decided this is of importance. It is of national importance. We will teach our children. Boom. End of story. Done. In the United States, well, you know, if you go to this private school or you're in this zip code, we'll teach you program in middle school. But if you're in this zip code, forget it. You're host. And then we're supposed to start solve the diversity effort on the back end when they get into industry. This is crazy. This is lunacy. Well, Doug, I mean, we've... <laughs> I mean, this has been such a deep and dense conversation. I just want to kind of wrap this up. Where can people find out more about you online? How can people get in touch with you about your work that you're doing? How can they reach you? Well, you can always reach me on Twitter. So it's Dougla. That's my ID, D-U-G-L-A. Okay. At Dougla. Or you can send me an email, douglas.turner at gmail.com. And it's Douglas with two S's. You know, give me a call, 781-775-3708. Uh, no headhunters, please. I get headhunters all the time. Um, <laughs> yeah, Twitter is fine. I like Twitter. Well, Doug, yeah. I mean, thank you so much for coming on this show and just talking about... I mean, I'm speechless. <laughs> I'm, I'm really speechless. I mean, well, aside from just what you talked about with your journey from New York to Chapel Hill to Apple to Iceland to back here, yeah. but just... I mean, it, it's it's obvious that you spend a lot of time really thinking about this kind of stuff. I mean, as it relates to diversity and things, but thinking about the root causes and how we can really start to snuff them out so we can get the goals that we want to achieve. It is such a satisfying activity. Why the hell are we not letting all children learn this? 
it is so enjoyable. I mean, yeah. software people, we don't want to say this too loudly because the bosses may be listening. We would do it, <laughs> we would do it for free. And when I got into computer graphics, that's how I felt. I said, my God, I would do this for free forever. You are making, this is my final little software pitchy kind of thing. In software, you are making something like Fred Brooks said out of pure thought stuff. There is nothing. It is purely from your brain. You can be as creative as you want. Anything you're interested in can be woven into software. My God, you could not come up with a more perfect activity to teach young children, young minds who are open to everything, to teach them about this activity and then let them loose. I mean, one of the big things I talk about to children is don't just be a coder. Whatever passion you have, maybe it's dance, maybe it's writing, maybe it's music. Think about how you would weave that in. And we sort of, when I was in the Bronx, I, I took ideas from the kids. This one's into singing. This one's into dance. And we would just dream up in 20 seconds or 30 seconds an idea for an app. These children have amazing ideas. And you've got to do this. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. that's a good place to... To wrap this up then, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. I really do appreciate it. Uh, thanks for inviting me, Maurice. This is a blast. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Douglas Turner and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Douglas and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes down to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have great reporting features, autoresponders, and you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contracts and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover, and you can save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code GIVETHANKS at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market, which is a marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com and pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday. And if you see something else that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. It helps more people find out about the show. And I'll even read your review right here on the air. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path to pledge your support. Pledge levels are super affordable. They start at just $1 per month. And you'll get access to behind-the-scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.